this is my, let's see, fifth year here. Um, I'm actually from Ohio, from Vermilion, Ohio. Everybody's, okay, <laughs> two people. <laughs> so, well, that's more than usual. Uh, so, uh, Vermilion, Ohio is a little town on uh, Lake Erie, beautiful town. We're actually going there after we get finished here. But uh, my wife is from Orlando, Florida, and uh, we met in the middle at Louisville, Kentucky. So, um, I had to, when we moved to Ohio, it took me three years to get her out of sandals. And, uh, and <laughs> I finally get into some closed-toed shoes, but uh, she is not used to the weather yet. We currently, though, uh, I don't know if you're reading bios or anything like that, but we currently live in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, down there. And uh, we have three little ones, Lincoln, Chamberlain, and Holly. And uh, we're hoping for more. My wife and I met at Southern Seminary. So anybody here of Southern Seminary? Okay, good. So we met there at Boyce Bible College, which is an undergraduate uh, school. We actually met in a marriage and the family class. No, it wasn't extra credit to get married, but uh, it sure was nice to, to be in that environment. And um, then we moved up here and pastored for five years, and then now we're pursuing more schooling down at Southern and Louisville, Kentucky. So biblical counseling is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I had the great blessing to study under Dr. Scott and Heath Lambert, and uh, my wife and I both, uh, and we just had such a tremendous time there. Um, love biblical counseling, love marriage counseling. That's probably my uh, most favorite thing to do is uh, to get right in the midst of issues that are going on and see the Lord do His wonderful work in people's hearts and their lives. But before uh, we go on, I want to ask you guys, and maybe a few of you be brave enough just to tell me, why have you come to this Biblical Counseling Conference? So just blurt it out. Undecided? Still don't know? <laughs> but why did you come? Why did you sign up? Yes? Um, I'm not a counselor, but I thought it would be very helpful for me because my husband and daughter are not safe. Mm -hmm. My daughter is going through a real spiritual battle right now. And I thought this would be a good place to get some wisdom to help me guide her in the right mm. That's good. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else? Why did you come? Yes. I've been having my own um, battles as I've been attending college, mm. and I, I go to a Christian college too. Mm -hmm. um, which and it's it's I'm I'm filled with I'm filled with so many things over and over, but I'm I'm having a hard time with my own personal um, like devotions and walk and learning because I just there's so much to do at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I thought this might help me kind of get me back in that groove. Yeah. Since I, I'm finally, finally done <laughs> this year, so. Yeah. Good. Good. Anybody else would like to share? Yeah. Uh, I was a uh, certified heathen for 38 years, and uh, when my ears were opened, uh, I do. I'm very involved in celebrating recovery, mm -hmm. and um, talking to people all the time about their habits, first habits, and hang-ups. The more I know about, because basically we're, I'm counseling people, mm -hmm. trying to get them to renew their mind. Mm -hmm. Okay, and yeah. it's uh, the uh, I know how Satan works, so I want to know how God works better. 
Yeah, that's good. That's good. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I love about um, people who pursue counseling, and one of the things that I have always tried to convey to Christians is that we all give counsel. We all give counsel. Whether it's good or bad, right? We all give counsel. And um, most of my life I spent working in the secular world as a human resource manager for Home Depot for many years. And we're surrounded by people who gave counsel, that is, gave advice. Now, whether it was shady or whether it was good or whether it was whatever, and, and most times it was uninvited, right? It was, hey, this is what I think. But the question is not, are we counselors? It's, are we giving good counsel? And what determines that, right, what determines that is not our opinions, it's actually does it measure up with the Word of God? You know, if I'm measuring something with a tape measure and someone asks me, how many inches is it? I don't, say, I don't just throw out a number, I look at the tape measure to see what's in line with. And just as the tape measure is my rule for determining feet and length and that, those types of things, the same is true that the Word of God is the measurement whereby we determine if our counsel is good. Because here's the thing. If anybody, I'm sure there's many people in this room who have actually had formal counsel uh, sessions with people. Or maybe it's just been informal. But whatever the case may be, you have given counsel to people. And in those moments, you can get frustrated because nothing changes. Um, They don't listen. Or they get mad at you. These are frustrating. And counseling is difficult because it's dealing where people are hurting. Right? That's typically where people come. Like, every time... Like, I never had a married couple come to me when everything was going great. Right? It's usually, you know, hey, man, the, the, the train's been derailed for years, maybe decades. And now we've got to get in there and start wading through this stuff. But it's painful. It's difficult. It's, it's speaking and engaging. With, it's engaging people at the most painful level. It's uncovering layers of maybe bitterness and hurt and pain. And yet the same thing can be true when they don't seem to want the godly counsel you're giving. And you can walk away from that and feel, man, I, I'm no good or I failed or maybe I shouldn't counsel anymore. Maybe I should just keep my mouth shut. I, I've had that thought many times. But then we have to come back to this. I counsel because I trust that the Word of God is sufficient for counseling. You see what I'm saying? So I started, um, I started pastoring in the sense of, I was a youth pastor for a while when I was 22. And I still look very young. Okay, people still think I'm 20s, maybe. The problem with that is, is people think, well, you don't know anything because you're young. And that's partially true, right? But the other element of that, you know what? The Word of God doesn't matter. We stick to the Word of God. It's sufficient. If you've been in the biblical counseling world for any length of time, you've heard somebody speak on the sufficiency of the Word of God. That, that, that right there is the foundation of biblical counseling. At school, when I went to uh, school at Biblical Counseling 101, the sufficiency of the Scriptures, the sufficiency of the Scriptures, they are sufficient. They're not impractical, but they're practical. They're not irrelevant. They're relevant for engaging in life. 
And so these are the things that we have to keep in mind is that as we are engaging people with counsel, whether it's our spouse, whether it's our kids, whether it's a co-worker, what we have to remember is this. Now what makes a successful counselor is not whether or not the person changes or listens. What makes a successful counselor is if your counsel is biblical. Is if it is in line with the Word of God and if it's spoken in love. You know, sometimes saying the right thing wrongly isn't helpful. Right? Saying the right thing wrongly isn't helpful. This is why Paul calls us in Ephesians, speak the truth in love with a, with a tenderness and a graciousness and understanding that we ourselves, we have been saved. And so humility must season our counsel. And grace must overwhelm the one that we're counseling. So these are some, I guess, parameters for our talk this morning. Let me pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. God, you are so good and so kind. And God, it's my prayer, Lord, this morning that you would tend to us. Father, none of us has any wisdom apart from you. Father, none of us has anything to bring to the table in our own strength, our own greatness, Father, except for what you supply. And so, Lord, we come here needing you. Father, we come here asking you to speak to not just our minds, but our hearts. Lord, to stir our affections, that there's people in this room that are either hurting or they're counseling someone who is hurting. And so, Lord, these are serious times. And so, God, it's, it's to you that we pray. The God who is sovereign over all things. The God who can turn hearts, change minds. The God who has won our affections and the God who can speak into places where we can't. So Lord, we pray you'd be with us today. Pray you'd be with us this morning. Pray you'd be with all the speakers right now, Father. God, as we don't... um, Father, we haven't gathered around man's wisdom, but yours. We haven't gathered around our opinions or ideas, but we come humbly to sit under your holy word. Father, your word is powerful. And so, Father, we give you praise and we thank you for your goodness. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. somebody to read, if you would, verses 9 through 11. So I'll read 1 through 8, and who would read 9 through 11 for me? Somebody out there? Okay, thank you. Let's read. There is 
therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Hmm. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to your Word. We would treasure it. We pray you'd be with us and lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's an old story, and you probably read it in the description of the class, unless you were signing for Joe's and you're taking this one by default, and you have no idea what's ahead of you. And my outline did not give you any ideas of what was coming either. It was the shortest outline of video. There's a story that's been passed down for centuries. It's a mythical battle in Greek mythology between the city of Troy and the Greeks. Some of you maybe have heard about it. This is out of Homer's writings. I'm not here to discuss whether it's true or not. I'm just here to dis- just to give you an example from it. But in this battle, and you can read about how the battle came about, and basically a beauty pageant went wrong. Basically what happened was the Greeks were going to try and defeat the Trojans, the city of Troy. And so for ten years they tried to penetrate the walls of Troy. They couldn't do it. Year after year after year, the Greeks could not penetrate the walls of Troy. With all their strength and all their might, they could not do it. So they came up with a plan. The plan was to build a wooden horse called a Trojan horse. And the idea was that we would build the horse and then we would put our finest soldiers inside the horse. And that we would sail away and hide behind an island. And that the plan was that the Trojans would come in to the camp, see that the Greeks had left, celebrated, and then pull the horse as some kind of trophy into the walls of Troy. And that's exactly what happened. That looks harmless. It's a wooden horse. What's, what's, a, what's a wooden horse going to do? And so they pull it into the walls and they celebrate it. And then they went to sleep. You might know what happens after they went to sleep. The soldiers, the Greeks, the finest, the best, dropped out of the wooden horse 
began to set fire to the town and killed everyone they could. And thus, they defeated the city of Troy. The Trojans, for ten years, fought valiantly. They fought hard to defend and successfully defended the city. But they lost. And they lost because there's something that seemed harmless. And they pulled it in. And they allowed it inside the walls. You see, they let their guard down. And because of that, they found their city in ruins. Now this is a lot to do in regards to what we're talking about this morning. The battle of the mind, or the battle for the mind. We understand that there is a battle that is going on inside our minds. As Christians, we have to be on guard for the Trojan horses that threaten to come into our city. And not just being uninvited, but we actually pull them in. Little thoughts can do great damage if left unchecked and unrenewed. Little thoughts. Listen, no sinful thought is content with being little. Every sinful thought that begins small has the desire to grow big until it overtakes you. Isn't it John Owen, the great Puritan, that says you should be killing sin or it will be killing you. He was referring to Paul's writings in Romans. Sin, sinful thoughts, are not content with staying inside either. They don't want to stay inside. They want to grow outwardly. Isn't this what Paul talks about, right? And this is what James talks about. Sin that begins internally, sin that begins in our heart and in our minds, begins to work its way out if it's not renewed. And these are the things that we have to be on guard over. In Romans 7, Paul says that he's in a battle. A fight with the sin that dwells inwardly. Paul knew that his biggest problem was not the sin out there, but the sin in here. You see, as parents, what we want to do most of the times is we want to spend a lot of our time protecting our children from the sin out there. And that's good. But don't neglect the sin in their own heart. And the same with us. What we should be most concerned about is the sin that's inside our own hearts. We are called throughout the scriptures to be vigilant, to be watchful, to stand firm. Paul tells us again in Romans 7 that there's a law that dwells in his inner being that wages war against his soul. And that sin within at times leads him into doing the things that he hates. The things that he doesn't want to do. I don't have to ask you, have you ever done something and then afterwards you hated it? I don't have to ask you that. Why? Because I already know. I already know the answer. We've all sinned, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that doesn't change once we get saved. Right? We, we get saved that is the Lord graciously saves us and yet we still find ourselves in struggles. And sometimes it's the same one we struggled with before we were saved. <coughs> and this is a battle. Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians 5.16-18 through 18, that there's a real war. That there's a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. It's happening inside. It's waging war against one another. 
In 1 Peter 5.8, Satan is a roaring lion seeking, looking, actively engaged in devouring people, leading people astray. When people come for counseling, they are generally not consumed and concerned with the sin in their own hearts. They're generally concerned with the sin that's either being done to them or that's around them. Now, that's just my experience. Generally, when you engage people over their issues, when they come to you, they want to talk about what that person did or what this person did. And when you flip it on them and say, well, actually, okay, they get that kind of crazy looking around. You don't know if they're going to leave, hit you, or listen. <laughs> right? I've been there. Some of you have been there, right? And it's in those moments where you, by God's grace and with love, try and help them to see that the greatest battle is not outside of them, but it's actually inside of them. And that maybe we would spend less time fighting with others if we spent more time fighting within our own souls. Because James tells us, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Well, she causes quarrels and fights among <coughs> Or he does. No, it's for the desires that are within your own soul. And if I could talk a little bit about that for a second, it's those desires that are left unrestrained. Right? How many times have people said this to me? I've done good this week. I held my tongue. Which basically just means you bottle up all your emotions until one day it's going to explode. But you never actually renewed your mind. What you've done is you've collected your thoughts, you've bit your tongue, and you've put them into a bank or a volcano that one day will erupt on someone. Right? Someone's getting burned in this, right? But you really haven't renewed your mind. See, there's a big difference between biting your tongue and renewing your mind. And we don't have time to go into all that right now. But we have to keep in mind that what causes so much disruption and frustration outside of us is those things that are left unchecked inside of us. It's not just the heart that drives us, but the power of the mind is absolutely incredible. What we think, what we fill our mind with, what we allow into our mind plays a huge role in what comes out of us. In Mark 12.30, we're called to love the Lord with our minds. And that doesn't just mean that we just go get a bunch of knowledge that we never even apply. Right? In Colossians 3.2, we're called to set our minds on things above. Now, why does he call us to set our minds on things above? Because we're prone for our minds to be set on things here. And not above. In 1 Peter 1.13, we're called to prepare our minds. Why? Because the direct implication is that our minds are not prepared. When we're saved, we don't automatically become perfect. Right? Sanctification, we understand, is a process whereby God graciously grows you and matures you up in the faith. Romans 12.2, we're called to renew our minds. The implication is that there's a need for your mind to be renewed. And the natural question should be, what do we renew our minds with? And because you're all here at the Biblical Counseling Conference, you know what that answer is. The Word of God, right? 
the Word of God. I, I one time wrote an entire, I think it was two sermons on the self-help movement. How it began, where it started, where did it seep into the church. And we looked at how so many people renew their minds with the wrong things. Because here's what I understand. The self-help movement has a high view, positive thinking, right? Just think positive, think positive. And that's, that's partially kind of true, right? Like what they're talking about is renewing your mind. It's the problem is you don't renew your mind with how great you are. You renew your mind with how good, gracious, and patient, and loving the Lord is. Huge difference. Huge difference. And so we understand that renewing our mind means you're reviving your mind. You're restoring, replenishing, building up your mind. I had some friends a while back ask me to redo their hardwood floors. Bravely, they asked me, and so I did. And I understand that there's a process in renewing hardwood floors. Right? There's a sanding off the old. Right? You have to take the sandpaper. You have to sand off the old. And sometimes, okay, maybe a lot of times, you've been there, you've read the scriptures, and, or maybe you've listened to a sermon, and there's something that was said, or there's something you read that just, it didn't feel good, but you knew it was right. right? It, it, uh, I don't really, but I, I know it's right, I know. I, I got I to gotta do it, or I got to say it, or I got to change, or I got to walk in this. We understand that it's a process. Renewing our mind is a process. You're not going to go listen to a sermon and all of a sudden your mind's renewed permanently. There's a constant renewal of the mind. Your mind should be renewed as often as bad and wrongful thoughts take root. Which is constantly. And these are the things that the Lord calls us in. When someone comes to me for counseling, what they primarily want is for their problem to be fixed. Have you ever asked them, what are you here for? Well, I want this fixed. I want them changed. They could just be better. Right? This is, this is what's on their mind. And they're almost always expecting to be given something practical to do. Just give me three steps. Right? Like, go home. Right? Throw the TV out in the yard. Or the computer. Or do this and do that. And then we're good. Like all of a sudden that's good. And the reason why people like that is because they're able to get their hands around. It's tangible. Right? Like I can do that. I can do that. Problem is, two months later they're back. And it's the same thing. And what we have to come to see is that they're focused on the external battle more than the internal battle. They want to fix right here out here the behavior modification. If, if I can just stop doing this. And listen, if you have kids, you understand the temptation to just want them to stop what they're doing, right? I mean, as a parent, just stop it. Not really telling you what you should be doing, just stop doing that. And sometimes we easily seep into that and we don't engage the heart or the mind. It's easy to get consumed by the external battle and forget that what's external is being driven by what's internal. And if we don't walk in victory internally, then we'll never walk in victory externally. If we haven't first renewed the minds, then how will we ever expect to walk in the ways that He's called us to walk? You'll never have victory over lust externally if you're not dealing with it internally. You're never going to have victory in patience or over your anger, if you're not first fixing what's, being, what's happening inside. 
the wrong thoughts, being consumed by what someone did to you. And these are the things that we have to wrestle with. This is the very battle of the mind. When did the Greeks come out of the horse? When they, when Troy had fallen asleep. This is why we have to be engaged with what's going on in our own mind. Every thought that enters our mind is like a seed. If we water that seed by thinking on it, mauling over it, allowing it free reign in our minds, then that thought, that seed will grow and grow until you act on it and begin to walk in it. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather pull up little saplings than big oak trees. And that's for sin. Now let's talk about righteousness. Let's think about good thoughts. Good thoughts are like seeds too, aren't they? Yes. And you water them. And you think about them. And then they grow strong and tall. And as David said in Psalm 1, it'd be like a tree planted by streams of water. You know why trees planted by streams of water are strong and have good roots? Because there's a constant nourishment. The stream of truth flows. And the tree drinks often. And so we are called as well to drink from the truth of God's good word. In Romans 12 too, Paul calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You see, there's a link between the renewing of our mind and being transformed. There's a direct link between the two. Fixing, setting, consuming your mind with the truth of Christ over and over again. We begin to see this transformation. God transforms our heart, right? He gives us a new heart. He removes the heart of flesh and gives us a new heart. But He also gives us the Spirit and His Word. So that we, by His grace and patience, will grow up into holiness and into faithfulness. And, and He will see this beautiful picture, right? As if Paul says in Ephesians, we are His workmanship, right? We are His workmanship. No one drifts toward holiness. You just don't naturally go toward holiness, right? What's Deuteronomy say? Train your children up in the way that they should go. What's the implication? That they won't go the way that they should go. Therefore, you are parents to help them go in the way that they should go. And we, as human beings, don't naturally go the way that the Lord is calling us to go, which is why He accompanies His Spirit with us. You see, when a person is saved, the Lord ignites a fire inwardly. And begins to fill our mind with His truth. And then in His gracious love, He surrounds us with piles and piles of wood called His Word. And we are to continue to feed the fire that burns in our minds with His truth. His promises. And not just any truth, but primarily the truth that those things that we're also wrestling with. I remember I was working with one um, guy individual and he was, he was dealing with anger. And I said, well, what, what are you reading? He said, well, I just started in Genesis. I said, well, that's good, right? I mean, all, right, all scriptures, God breathe and all. But listen, let me, let me help direct you to some actual passages that will speak directly into the areas that you're wrestling and struggling with. This is, again, this is why we are called to be competent with the Word of God. Right? 
And so let me, let me help you see the verses that are helpful in this area. Right? James 1.20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so when you're, when you're going or when you're at work and, and you're, you, something boiling, you know when it's about to come out, right? And it starts, it starts boiling and you start having that thought, oh, I can't believe. And all of a sudden, you, say, you know what? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You renew your mind with God's truth, right? As Paul says in Corinthians, to take every thought captive, right? Captive by the Word of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when you take something captive, that in which you're seeking to take captive usually isn't like, here I am, hey, come get me. No, man, you've you got to go after that, right? Like, you've you got you to pursue that. You've got to trap it. And this is where we're called in God's Word. To renew our minds by taking our thoughts captive and instead setting our minds on His truth on things above. Now, because we're in a conference setting and when we talk about renewing our mind, there's so many different ways we can go. We could pick almost any sin and just spend the whole rest of the time on that particular one. All of you are wrestling with probably something different, or you're counseling someone that's counseling or has something going on. And so we can't speak to every single thing. So what I want to do is just take the remainder of our time and point you to three key truths in Roman in Romans eight that we can renew our minds with, right? So when we're talking about particular areas of sin, there's particular verses to renew our minds with, but there's also passages throughout the scripture that are universal in scope. That is, we can renew our mind with these truths. It doesn't matter what we're struggling with. These are truths that cover all things. And so look with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Many of you have heard this. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. The first truth to constantly renew our mind with is that Christ has won the battle of sin and death. Now this is one of those truths that because we've been in church for any length of time, we get, right, we, or we think we get, and so we just move on to something else. But we don't maul over these truths. We don't renew our mind enough with the basic truths of the gospel. That Christ has won the battle of sin and death. We may still struggle and wrestle here, but ultimately He has already won it. And it's out of that truth that we press on. We don't say, well, he won the battle, so I'm just going to sit back and, and enjoy it. No, he said, he won the battle. He won it. He completed it. Therefore, we are renewed in our strength to press on, to walk in the way he's called us to. In Romans 7, Paul is dealing with the law and the role it plays in our life. He says, the law exposes the reality of our condition. And affirms the guilt of our own conscience. As humans, when we feel the weight of guilt, our tendency is to try and clean ourselves up. If you've ever looked at, um, I guess you could say, the statistics in the psychological world, guilt is up there as one of the biggest, I mean, just huge. Guilt over everything, right? You can't medicate away guilt. You can't. You can't. Guilt is a grace from the Lord. And you may say, well, it doesn't feel like a, it doesn't feel like a grace. 
But it is, when we feel guilt, it should drive us to the cross where all guilt is removed and washed away by the blood of Christ. That's what guilt is. Guilt over our sin drives us to the cross. Right? How many times did Paul say, Paul, right, he recounted all his sins. Man, he's a bad, I was a bad guy, but I am what I am by the blood of Christ. He, what he's saying is, yeah, I was a bad guy, but he washed it all away. He washed it away. This is why we can renew our minds with the reality that he has won the battle. The fundamental key to dealing with guilt is not to go do, but is to believe and trust the gospel. Right? We had, was it two years ago, we had some uh, Muslims, uh, Muslim students live with us. There were two, two sisters from Saudi Arabia that live with us. And we were sitting around the table one day. And one of them said, yeah, I did something bad. But what I did was, I felt bad about it. So then I got some money and I went and found a homeless person to give some money to. That's just, that's just not, you don't need to teach. That's just natural. Right? When, when, when you do something bad, right, and you feel guilt, the natural inclination is to go and fix it. Do good. You can't. What does it say? God did, right? He did, in verse 3, what you couldn't. God did what we could not do. We can't clean ourselves up good enough. We can't be good enough, which is why Jesus died on the cross. So that through Him, our righteousness is not found in our works, but it's found in His works. It's not primarily about what we can do, it's about what He has done. And we rest and trust in this. Now when I say rest and trust, it doesn't mean we just sit around and and just kind of hang out. No, we pursue these things that the Lord has done, but we pursue them out of a knowledge and out of a renewal of the mind that the battle has already been won. This is the key to understanding the battle, that He's won it. We don't carry the weight of hoping to win it. It can be exhausting to think that the weight of your righteousness rests on how you perform. This is what makes the love of Christ so incredible. That His love is not contingent upon your performance. (coughs) How about you? But if you've been in relationships, that's how most human relationships are. Love is contingent upon performance. But here, we see that the love of Christ... Right? Doesn't, doesn't Paul say that he loved us while we were still sinners? Now that's a mind-blowing truth. Because to us what makes sense is he loved us when we got our act together. Ah! He loved us while we were still sinners. You know, oftentimes people feel so defeated before they even set out. Have you ever talked to someone who's given up fighting sin? They're just exhausted and they feel defeated. Because they have carried a weight they were not meant to bear. 
And in that moment, what needs to be spoken is, brother or sister, listen, the weight you're bearing to try and conquer your own sin, Christ has already conquered on the cross. You don't bear the weight. He came to fulfill the law. Therefore, we can be free in Christ to walk in holiness. To walk in the ways that He's done. And man, listen, when we stumble and when we fall, we've got to get out of this thinking that God's frustrated with us, He's disappointed with us, and ah, I shouldn't have saved you. I didn't know you'd be a train wreck like this. No, we understand that He's gracious and He's patient the same way, right? I heard one pastor say the same way that we are with our children when they're learning how to walk. Right? In my first summer, he's learning how to walk, right? He's stumbling and he falls over. I'm not like, geez, you're never going to get this. Right? I mean, this, who's this guy? Get him out of here. No, we're, he takes a couple steps and we're excited and then we, we continue to praise, right? We clap and, yes, good job. Look at the progress you've made. And so many times we, we are defeated and our minds are so much on us and not on Christ. That's where our minds, that's where our, our eyes should be. Fix your eyes on Christ. This is what Hebrews says, to fix your eyes on Christ, the author and the finisher. Listen to that. So Paul tells the Galatians, you foolish Galatians in chapter 3, you thought you could finish what he started? You can't start what he, you can't finish what he started. Yeah, you're called to walk in these things, absolutely. But ultimately, I love what John MacArthur said. He said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Right? You could. I mean, we're not that great. Apart from the grace and love of the Lord. Um, in verse 3, I'll walk through this quickly. God has done what you couldn't. This truth alone assumes our inability. It assumes our inab- it assumes what you already feel. Have you ever listened to a sermon on humility? And you're like, okay, I'm going to be humble. And then you really try and start being humble, which is great, right? And then all of a sudden you do something right, and then that's gone, right? I mean, if we do anything well for any length of time, we, we, we struggle with pride, don't we? Absolutely. And this is why we have to trust and renew our mind with God has done what we couldn't. Yeah, we're called to be holy. But will we ever in our own strength be holy? No. In Christ we're holy. We're called to be humble, but will, will we ever actually get there apart from glory? In, in this, on this earth, will we ever get to the point where we are perfectly humble? No. But through Christ, we are. You see what I'm saying? You see, one of the things that, in, in I guess it's American culture, with our legalistic tendencies, and I've done this and still do this, do you read the scriptures and you come across verses that call us to be humble, or call us to be patient. And your first thought, your first thought is, <sighs> just, man, just lost it with the kids. Look at me. That's your first thought. Second thought is, God, I gotta, gotta nail this. Gotta nail it. Third, you get online and start looking for books on humility. 
Maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> I'm humbly telling that to you. <laughs> the first thought when we read these passages to be humble, to be patient, to be holy, to be holy as your Heavenly Father is only. Our first thought should be this. Praise be to Christ who was for me what it's calling me to do in which I cannot. That doesn't exclude us from it, right? It's said, well, he did it so I don't have to be holy because he's already locked this up. No, that's not what we're saying at all. You see, we're prone to read the Scriptures with a list mentality. Okay, here's a Bible. It's a book of rules. And I need to just make this list of everything I need to start doing. Instead of, you know what? The Bible is primarily about the gracious love of our Lord Jesus Christ who was sent here by our Heavenly Father to redeem those who could not redeem themselves. And so rather than primarily and first seeing the scriptures and all these commands as something you have to go do, rest in them that Christ has done them. And then, when you have that in your mind, praise God He's done them. Then go and strive after being humble. Strive after holiness. Strive after patience. So we're not saying He's done them, don't worry about it. No, we're saying that the reality and the truth that He has accomplished what we couldn't drives, motivates, and fuels us in joy to go and live these things out. You see, when the reality is that Christ has fulfilled the law, what that is essentially was saying is that He removed the burden... Right? The taskmaster, right? Paul refers to the law as a taskmaster, right? So every, every time you mess up, boom, you get that whack from the taskmaster. Right? So you're, you're sitting there, you know, kind of looking up. That's, that's not what we're talking about in the Christian life. In the Christian life, we're talking about that Christ has fulfilled the law. Therefore, the weight and the burden is removed. The joy we have in Him is restored. And we can now walk in the knowledge of Him who's given us what? He's given us His Holy Spirit. He's, he's given us His Word. He's surrounded us in these things so that we can walk in His ways. And that when we stumble and struggle, He's not frustrated with us. We keep our eyes on Him. And we walk faithfully in the ways that He's called us to walk. Okay. Let me fast forward down here to number two. The last two are quickly, so don't get... Worried, no one's checking in on me yet. <laughs> the second truth that we must renew our mind with is that our life was saved by Him. Our life was saved by Him. For Him. I love the passage in Ezekiel 36. Because He says, it's not for your sake that I saved you. Well, wait a minute. No. It's for the sake of my great name. Wow. So, Him saving me is linked to the greatness of His name. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you look at verse 9, we'll work a little bit backwards. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. This is not a universal passage. Paul's directly speaking of the church in Rome. He's telling them that you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. You are in the Spirit. That is, you have the Spirit living in you. 
And because of that, you therefore are led by the Spirit. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? That you walk not according to the your leading, but the Spirit's leading. This is huge to renew our minds with. Because so often, we want our way. We want our will to be done. We want what we want. I can't tell you how many times, again, I've sat there. Let's say, for instance, a couple. And they're telling me about what's happening. And and I say, so what would you like to see happen? They tell me all that they would like to see happen. And I pause and I say, what do you think God wants? And there's almost always a stare. Which means they haven't thought about it. Right? They haven't thought about what does God want? What does God want? What does He want? Because if we understand that our life, He saved, we also understand that we are not our own, but we were bought with our price. We were bought with a price. Right? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We were bought with a price. Therefore, honor the Lord with our life, with our bodies. We must renew our mind with the truth that He has graciously saved us. And that our life is now His. Our life is His. And we look to Him. We trust in Him. We rest in the Lord. And it's not about what we want anymore. In the sense of, uh, what can I say, uh, neglect of the Spirit's leading in our life. But we look to what His will is. And where do we find His will? Where do we find the will of the Lord? Just yell it out. Where do we find it? In the Word. In His Word. Finally, the Spirit He gave. Verses 10 through 11. I know I'm skipping some, but I want to get you out of here on time. We see that He gave us the Spirit. These are the three truths. The battle He won, the life He saved, and finally the Spirit He gave. The third and final truth we must renew our mind with is that He gave us the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, the Spirit dwells in those whom the Lord has saved. He gave His Spirit, He planted the Spirit in us as to seal His work that He began. The Spirit is the Lord's guarantee on all His promises that He made to His people. A guarantee. 2 Corinthians 1. It is God who establishes us in Christ. How do we know that He won't leave us? How do we know He won't give up on us? How do we know that He will finish what He started? In verse 22, He placed His seal, the Holy Spirit, on us by putting His Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is His seal that He presses. Right? You ever watch those old movies and the kings of the emperors, they drip the wax on the scroll and then they press their seal, the signet ring, right? That Matthew talks about, as Zerubbabel would be, right? Uh, someone would come from his line as the seal of his promise. And the Holy Spirit is a seal, it's a guarantee. The legal definition of guarantee is this, a formal pledge or a promise to pay another person's debt or to perform another person's obligation in the case of default. We have defaulted in our righteousness. Therefore, Jesus 
has made up. He has done what we couldn't do, and he's sealed it, right? God has sealed that by the Holy Spirit. You, you ever went somewhere, you're going to buy something, you ask the, that's the salesperson, what's the guarantee? Well, two years, five, you know, five years, ten minutes as soon as you walk out the door, right? But God's guarantee is for eternity. Could you imagine going into somewhere and buying something, and you say, what's the guarantee? And they say, oh, it's eternity. <laughs> Yeah, this is shady and we go down the road. Right, but in God's kingdom, in God's graciousness, our salvation, the greatest thing that has ever happened to anybody who is saved, is guaranteed for all of eternity. And these are the kind of truths that we want to set our minds on, we want to renew our minds with, and we constantly want to run these over, over and over and over again. Because there's going to be times, if not yet today, where you begin to fail, feel and have these thoughts that you're a failure. You're going to have these thoughts that you're a failure, that your life has no purpose, or you're a bad mother, or you're a bad father, you're this or that, and you have these thoughts and you're going to ha- need to be renewed that the Lord has saved you. That your salvation has been guaranteed and He's given you the Holy Spirit. Three truths that are so huge in the Christian faith. When we talk about renewing our mind, to renew our mind with these, that the battle He won, that He won it, that ultimately He won it. He's finished. He's wrapped it up. Amen. And that He saved us. And think about all that entailed. That He saved us. What it cost Him. He saved us. And then finally, the Spirit He gave. He didn't just start the work. He'll finish the work. And when you counsel someone, what they need is to be reminded of what's true. They need to be given hope. And they need to be given assurance of these things. Point them to the truth. Now, obviously we can have all these gospel conversations, whether or not they're saved, and how you need to lead them to the gospel. I can't cover everything in one session. Just pointing out to you that these are three huge truths. Our hope is not in digging deeper within ourselves. It's falling down at the feet of our sovereign Lord and crying out, Oh God, my God. As David says, From where does my help come from? My help comes from who? The Lord. The Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here, Lord, who has given of their time to come and to sit. And Father, pray that you would uh, use these words, use your truth to speak to them. Father, I pray that you would help to equip us to be faithful followers and faithful counselors of your word. Lord, we pray that you would bring people into our lives that uh, not only would sharpen us, but also, um, Lord, that we could be uh, ministers to. Father, help us to always have eyes of ministry. Father, I pray for the rest of our time here today. Lord, I pray you'd be with it and blessed. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you.